attachment, aversion, greed, all of these cause violence. Therefore, Lord Krishna says, Shaknoti Hivasodham, Prak Sharira Vimokshana, Kamakrodhud Bhumvegam, Sayuktaha, Sasuki Naraha. One who can keep under check this impulses of the lust and anger and greed, that person is a yogi. So, Lord Krishna gives different kind of definitions of yogi. One definition is one who can keep under check the impulses arising from lust, anger, greed. Meaning that the cause for this is there within ourselves. And basically that cause is ignorance. And ignorance causes fear. Ignorance also causes various needs. And these needs create various desires. So, these desires are what we call karma. When a desire is not fulfilled, it results into what we call krodha or anger. <coughs> when desire is fulfilled, it becomes loha. See, that's the nature of desire. And that's the reason why they compare it with fire. So, as by pouring butter in the fire, the fire becomes more and more, uh, I mean, you know, demanding. And similarly also, more we try to fulfill the desire, if the desire gets fulfilled, it brings in its wake some more desires and that's how it, this fulfillment of desire gives us to what we call greed. And if desire is not fulfilled, it gives us to the anger. <coughs> and all of these are damaging things. And so, if I recognize that whenever my behavior or action is controlled by any one of these impulses, then that action becomes violent. Has to be. Whenever I act out of anger, there has to be violence. Or whenever I act out of greed, then also there has to be violence. Lord Krishna says in the second chapter, Krodhat Bhadi Sammoha Sammohat Smriti Vibhramaha Smriti Vibhramsat Buddhinasaha Buddhinasat Panasyati Krodhat Bhadi Sammoha When Krodha or anger comes, Sammoha, then comes delusion. Delusion that, that means that my mind loses its capacity to discriminate. My mind loses the capacity to see things clearly and the perception of my mind becomes distorted. What it means is that when I get angry, then what is wrong appears to be right and what is right appears to be wrong. So innocent person appears to be, you know, uh, he, he thinks that he deserves punishment. I think that this fellow deserves punishment, even though the person may or may not deserve it. And that's anger distorts my perception. I cannot see things as they are. And therefore, whenever I act out of anger, there is going to be hurting, damaging somebody or hurting somebody. <coughs> there is going to be an injustice. There is going to be unfairness and there is going to be therefore violence involved. So, out of anger, out of greed also. Even when greed also takes hold of my mind, then also my viveka buddhi, meaning the sense of discrimination or true perception also goes relegated to the background. A greedy person also becomes insensitive because he feels that he doesn't have enough, he wants more and more, and therefore becomes insensitive to the needs of other people. And therefore if you look around, most of the violence in the world is caused by anger or greed. Of course, violence also is caused by karma or lust. So lust also brings about violence, anger brings about violence, greed brings about violence. And therefore, practice of this discipline or the value of non-violence requires that we should be able to keep these under check. And that again requires, on my part, to have value for the value of non-violence. I can practice a value only when its value is valuable to me, that is, only if non-violence is valuable to me, then alone I can make the adequate effort that is required in order to practice it. It's not easy to keep these impulses in the check. And to keep those impulses in the check, number one, requires alertness, for me to be alert. Very often we come under the spell of these impulses and then we realize. Very many times I say, I, I, yes I know, I'm not going to use any harsh words today. And I recognize it only after I've used them. I'm, you know, I'm not going to get angry. I recognize after I get angry. This is one of the problems of what we call lack of alertness. So even though we may have value, even though I value values such as non-violence, it is not enough that I have value of the value, but then I must be around to practice that value. 
when the actual situation comes, I must, my mind must be in a proper frame to recognize that, hey, here is the time to be non-violent. That means my mind must awake to the situation. When I'm not awake, when I'm not alert, when I've come to the spell of one of these impulses, then alertness is not there. And that is why inadvertently we find ourselves violating. So people who do not have a value of non-violence, they may deliberately violate because they don't recognize the value of non-violence. But even those who recognize the value of non-violence also may find themselves violating when they are not alert and vigilant. So, practicing a value requires number one, discovering a value of the value, and number two, being vigilant or alert to practice that value when its time or occasion comes. <coughs> and what is the value of non-violence? Of course, as we said this morning, non-violence is valuable to everybody. Because nobody really wants to live and live happily. Everybody has love for life is natural. For the very simple reason that existence is by nature. Sat or existence or immortality is by nature and therefore love or immortality is also natural. And therefore nobody wants to die. Also happiness or ananda is by nature. And therefore love or happiness also is natural. And therefore nobody wants unhappiness or pain or sorrow. Third thing of course is knowledge is by nature. Therefore nobody wants ignorance. And therefore when I do something that goes against the want of somebody else, then that somebody gets hurt. And thus, as we say in the morning also, it requires me to be very alert and vigilant, to be to the, sensi- to the, to the needs and the requirements and rights of other people, calls for a sensitivity as well as alertness. <coughs> and violent behavior in fact, hurts the person who is violent before it can hurt somebody else. I can become violent provided, first of all, my mind becomes violent. There is anger in my mind. And that itself damages my own mind. So the anger, as well as this very attitude of violence itself, first damages my mind, and then it will damage the person upon whom this anger or violence is expressed. And thus, this hurts both where it originates and where it lands. So when you recognize how, so krodhat bhodi sammoha, sammoha smatavi brahma, whenever anger comes, then there is delusion in my mind, I lose the clarity of my perception, and from that comes smati brahmsa. Smati brahmsa means that whatever I know as right, whatever my culture and education is, all of that is not available to me. Smati brahmsa buddhinasa my buddhi of the mind loses the capacity to think correctly. Buddhi nasat pranasyati. And thus, if I allow myself to be controlled by this anger, all these violent attitudes, then slowly and slowly my own personality comes to a destruction. In the sense that I become incapable of achieving anything worthwhile in my life. This is how Lord Krishna says, pranasyati. This ultimately brings a destruction of a person. Of course, he doesn't die as a human being. But he dies as a person who, what is the purpose of human life, is to achieve the goal of our life. And that is moksha, or even dharma. But artha kama, for all of that I become, even earth also, wealth also one cannot acquire if a person is angry. Suppose I am a businessman, you know, and a customer comes to me and I get angry. The customer is not going to stand there. And so even artha, artha means even the wealth, etc. also cannot be acquired if the person is angry. And kama. If I get angry at the thing that I am going to enjoy, kama means enjoyment or pleasure, pleasure also cannot be enjoyed if a person is angry. Dharma, righteousness, of course, cannot be there when I am angry. Then what to talk of moksha, and therefore, thus a person who is angry becomes ultimately incapable of, of even enjoying the simple pleasures of life. Then what to talk about is incapability of what we call the spiritual growth or inner growth. And so, when I recognize that, then there is a value for non-violence. <coughs> and when it becomes valuable, of course then, I become prepared or alert to practice it. For practicing non-violence, Lord Krishna says very nicely in Bhagavad Gita. In the sixth chapter, there is a beautiful verse. It says, 
आत्मोपमेन सर्वत्र समम पश्यति अर्जुन सुखम वाय दिवा दुखम सयोगी परमो मत सुखम वाय दिवा दुखम इन कंसिडरिंग हैप्पीनेस और अनहैप्पीनेस वेन आई प्लेस माई सेल्फ इन द पोजिशन ऑफ अदर्स एंड देन एक्ट इन द सिचुएशन दैट वेरी एक्शन इज कॉल योगा सयोगी परमो मत है मीनिंग वन ऑलवेज प्लेस इज वन सेल्फ एज इज स्टैंडर्ड एंड सो आई प्लेस माई सेल्फ इन द पोजिशन ऑफ द अदर पर्सन एंड देन आस माई सेल्फ हाउ वुड आई लाइक टू बी ट्रीटेड इफ आई वॉज इन दैट पोजिशन एंड अकॉर्डिंगली आई ट्रीट द अदर पर्सन इफ दिस इज सयोगी परमो मत है If this is what we do, then we become param yogi or great yogi, greatest yogi. Lord Krishna says to become the yogi, you may not even do your asana and pranayama. Even if you don't do your samadhi practices, just do this. So, Swami, is it possible that in a samsaric life that we can ever do these things? So, Lord Krishna says, in the so-called samsaric life also, this can be done. In fact, some I don't know samsaric life means what. Everybody has to live their life anyway, and life always involves interaction with other people. And while interacting with someone, I keep asking this question: How would I like to be treated if I am that position? And that is how I try to treat another person. That would be a non-violent action. This is the practice of non-violence, placing myself in the position of others. <coughs> As we said. Non-violence is the practice at the level of three levels because violence can take place through our actions at the level of body, through actions at the level of speech, through action at the level of mind also. <coughs> of course, we understand what meant by violence by my physical action. That is violence, and all of us know because we are all civilized people, and therefore I don't think that anybody indulges in that kind of violence of hurting somebody. But when you get angry, sometimes you don't know. Out of anger, people can strike somebody. That can happen. So violence occurring at the physical level, or by my physical action. And when we are talking about this, uh, we must recognize one thing: that even though non-violence is a value, really practicing non-violence at the physical level in its entirety is not possible. It is not possible to practice non-violence in its entirety at the physical level. Because it appears that this life is based, life in living itself involves some violence. Living itself involves violence. It is said in Sanskrit, "Jivo jivasya jivanam." One life feeds upon another life, and thus we see that kind of violence is very much there in the nature that one life form depends upon another life form. And therefore, we would have to say that that kind of violence. Which is there for survival, which is built into nature, we would not call it violence. We would call it a need or necessity. And therefore, when a carnivorous animal perhaps attacks or kills another animal, like deer, etc., we would not call it violence for simple reason that that is how it is built into the nature, and that is how it seems the Creator has arranged for fulfilling the needs of all the creatures. And therefore. Food is created for all the creatures, and food must, necess- must necessarily be a live thing. Nobody can eat stones and rocks and things that are inert. The food must necessarily be live, and therefore everybody eats live food, including human beings also. And so this question is often asked by people: Swamiji, is eating meat is it more violent than eating vegetables? Is it not that even a vegetarian also has to eat vegetables, and is it not that vegetables also have life? So plants and vegetables also have life, and then a vegetarian also, in, so even practicing vegetarianism also involves violence. So after all, if there is going to be violence, whether I am a vegetarian, and there is violence even when I eat meat, that is to kill animal, you know, animal flesh. If I eat, what's the difference? Why is it? In fact, in many questions that are asked me, one of them is that Swami, what should I tell my friends when they ask me why am I a vegetarian? You know, because that doesn't seem to be a proper justification as to why should I be vegetarian. I can't justify. Not justify in this sense, you know, because 
If you say vegetarian, you know, it means non-violence, but then it also involves violence. The answer is yes, that eating vegetarian food also involves violence. And therefore, as we said that in our day-to-day life, at the physical level, it is not possible to avoid violence altogether, and therefore our, our value there should be minimize the violence. And so we say that, yes, vegetable also has life, plants also have life, but then that life is at a much lower level of evolution than those of animals, and therefore killing an animal means killing a life which has evolved millions of years more than a plant, and therefore eating animal flesh would be much more violent than eating plant or vegetarian food. And of course many plants and vegetables and trees are designed to give us food without being destroyed also. And many roots and fruits. That's the reason why perhaps our sages in the olden days would eat only would survive on roots and fruits. And perhaps they would only eat fruits which drop from the trees. And so, therefore not involving destruction of any life. But that may not be practical right now because we cannot go to forest you know, these days and then eat those fruits which have fallen down and become ripe. We have to eat whatever is available in the, in the supermarkets. But still, as we say, vegetarian food involves much little, much less violence as compared to the flesh, eating flesh of the uh, animals. And so, that way, this is minimum violence. Any kind of waste also is violence. Yoga Shastra also prescribes a discipline called Aparigraha. Aparigraha means non-holding. Not keeping with you what more than what you require. Or also Brahmacharya, not consuming more than what you require. So, consuming more than what I require, keeping more than what I require, or any kind of waste also will be violent. Because Nature has created food for all the living beings. And the rule is that all the living beings take from the store of nature what they need. This rule is followed by all the life forms. And so the birds take from the nature what they need. The animals also take from nature what they need. They don't have any storehouses, they don't have any freezers, they don't have any warehouses, meaning that they never stock food or never store food except some animals like some squirrels etc which they know that they're going to require food they won't get that food in winter and so but otherwise we don't see this tendency of storing or stocking you know in nature anywhere there's a constant flow going on it seems anyway that all the creatures in nature seem to have a certain amount of trust in the scheme of things and therefore i guess they seem to be quite assured in their own mind that tomorrow the food will come to us we'll get what we need but human being does not have the trust and therefore he feels that he doesn't, he's not sure whether he will get what he needs tomorrow and therefore he sees the needs of stocking. All right. That comes from insecurity. But whenever I stock a lot of things that I must know that I am depriving some other creatures who have that need. And therefore having 35 pairs of shoes or 59 pairs of clothes or whatever, sixteen bedrooms, five cars, things like that, you know, which are much more than what I require. All of these would be considered as really holding. And thus, when I am holding something, I am depriving somebody of what, you know, their need. And therefore, aparigraha, Yoga Shastra prescribes aparigraha non-holding. In fact, it means also not receiving any gifts or not or keeping anything. So, to the extent that we can do this, to that extent our life becomes non-violent. Also wasting things, you know, wasting food also is violence because then I'm depriving somebody of what that creature or person could have had. In Bhruhadarnika Upanishad, at some point in time, Shankarajar explains. Bhruhadarnika Upanishad says, that the Creator has created food for all the beings. And therefore, whenever I am eating food, so when I am putting a morsel of food in my mouth, the rest of the world is watching me, looking at me. They look beastful of eating our food. And therefore, I cannot consume one morsel of food unless I deprive some creature of what they could have. And therefore, 
eating more than what I require also becomes violence. But Swamiji's idli I can't, you know, resist in there. For when it comes, that's all. Normally I may eat only one chapati, but when idli comes, three, four, five, six, you know. Swami is bada. Last yesterday evening when I entered the dining hall, something is being fried. I had that aroma. Yes, Swamiji, that is bada. That's it. Once I see that, you just cannot control. Doctor may have said, Swamiji, your cholesterol is high. That time I forget it. <laughs> and so, not only violating others, violating our own body also is violence. One, once, once one youngster asked me, Swamiji, how come all the Swamis seem to always uh, criticize this seeking sense pleasure? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with enjoying the things of the world? I said, nothing wrong in it, as long as you don't hurt anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. I said, you should not hurt yourself also. Understand that when you dump in your body what the body does not require, what the body cannot handle, that in, you are in fact injuring the body, hurting the body, damaging the body. So that also becomes violent. You can imagine how alert and sensitive one is required to be in order to practice non-violence. And I said, Mahatma Gandhi, who was, you know, devoted to this vow of non-violence, he could not justify eating more than one millet bread and spinach. That is all that they would cook in the ashram. If you go and stay that, that's what you get. So what anybody gets also is quite determined there. And it seems that somebody brought some gift Somebody brought some mangoes, you know, and then gave them as gift to the ashram. So Gandhiji came to know that mangoes will come. So he said that today there will be one less bread for everybody, you know, because they're getting this. I don't know that whether we should do that or not, but I'm just giving you, you know, the example of how if, if you are wedded to non-violence, I'm talking of non-violence, but it's not, I find it not easy to practice non-violence. He says, how can I eat anything more than just millet, bread and spinach when many people are hungry, I can't eat that. How can I eat so many clothes on my, how can I have so many clothes on my body when so many people don't have any clothes and so he reduced his clothes to just one loincloth. All of these came from his consideration of what is meant by non-violence. And just more and more we think about it. The thing is that all these values really will become clearer to us as we try to practice them and as we try to interpret that value in a given situation. As you said in the morning that a value, a value is not a given action. It is really a perception. And in every situation what is meant by non-violence will depend upon my perception of that situation and my role and responsibility in that situation. And as I go along, I discover different dimensions of the value. I discover the subtleties of what is meant by non-violence, what is meant by truthfulness. We keep discovering that. And that's how our, our mind becomes more and more refined. The persons become, person becomes more and more refined, more and more sensitive. And that is what is meant by emotional maturity. <coughs> so this is the violence, non-violence at the level of physical actions. And of course, second is non-violence at the level of speech that we are quite capable of hurting others by our words also. Perhaps there is more of that non, more than violence perhaps. Well, sometimes violence starts there. So, hurting somebody by my speech and therefore requires tremendous alertness on my part to, to think before I speak whether my word is it going to hurt somebody. Lord Krishna says in the 17th chapter, Anuddvega karam vakyam satyam Prihitam chayat svadhyaya bhisanam chayva vangmayam tapauchade. In order for me to practice non-violent level of speech, Lord Krishna prescribes austerity of speech. Anudvegakaram vakyam. We make sure that vakya or your words, anudvegaram, does not perturb anybody. Does not create udvega or perturbance in anybody's mind, does not hurt anybody. Then, what do you say also to Satyam? It should be truthful. Further, it should be Priyam. It should also be pleasant. So, what I speak should be truthful. What I speak should be pleasant. And what I speak should be hidden, beneficial. So, wasting words also be in a way waste and therefore violence. 
Because a lot of energy is expended in talking. And a lot of unnecessary talking also involves in a way a certain level of violence. So Lord Krishna says we should speak that which is beneficial, that which is necessary. And that also should be spoken in a manner that it is pleasant. And that also should be spoken only when it is truthful. And that also should be spoken when it does not does disturb anybody. Swami, if I want to follow this, I can't talk at all. Perhaps a lot of, you know, maybe 90% of our talk will be correct, it's possible. A lot of peace in the world will be there. Because very often, a lot of, you know, violence has begun from these words. Even wars have started. They say that even the, the, the Mahabharata war, you know, this battle between Kauravas and Pandavas also, had its source in some words of Draupadi. All these, these women have been very, you know, pivotal in, in, in many of these, like Sita was pivotal in the fine battle between Rama, Rama and Ravana. And so Draupadi also was involved. And so when Yudhishthira, the eldest of the Pandavas, was uh, performing what they call Rajasu Yajna, very elaborate fire ritual was being performed, which only kings can perform. At that time, a great architect, his name was Maya, he created a whole palace of, of crystal. And the creation was such that what was surface looked like water and what was water looked like surface. This is how it is said. And so Duryodhana, he was, all kings were invited, Duryodhana when he enters, in many places he fumbled. So when there was a solid surface, he thought it was water and so he was avoiding that. And when in fact there was water, he thought this is solid surface, he walked on that and fell down in water. And Draupadi along with the Pandavas were watching this and they made a tremendous fun of this Duryodhana. They said, oh, today it becomes very clear who your father is, you know. You are the son of... So, you don't seem to have eyes, you seem to be blind. It was not said that way. But today it is very clear whose son you are. You are the son of blind and therefore you also cannot see. So Duryodhana heard this. He did not take this kindly at all. He was nursing grudge for being insulted openly in, in front of other people. And he said that this may have uh, definitely something to do with reference to the battle of Mahabharata. But anyway, words can bring about wars also. But, and therefore, this austerity of speech, this would be wonderful, that members of the same family who live together, they observe this vow of austerity of speech, that I do not say something that will disturb or hurt somebody else. What I say is truthful. But Swamiji then, it is not necessary that I should say what is truth. But if I do say, then I say that which is truthful. And not only but Swamiji, whenever I speak truth, it always hurts other people because truth is always bitter. Then say that in pleasant way. In ple so, that will require me to think, how to say this so that it is pleasant and that the communication takes place. <coughs> as best as you can, I mean, you know, this is the value. And we try to practice this value as much as we can. So, non-violence at the physical level means minimum violence. But violence at the level of speech can definitely be avoided, again, by having a value and having alertness. Before I speak, I think, is it Satyam? Is it Priyam? Is it Hitam? Satyam Bruyat, Priyam Bruyat, Hitam Bruyat. If it is not, then I avoid speaking. And I, I, decide, I think of a way of how to speak that. And third, is the violence at the level of the mind. Of course, so whenever I deliberately entertain hurting thoughts for somebody, then it is also violence. It doesn't show up, but it is there nevertheless. And number one, it damages my own mind, and someday those violent thoughts, which arise out of anger, arise out of resentment, arise out of retaliation, somebody has done something to me, and therefore in my mind there is this tendency to retaliate. And when that builds up, in course of time, it will also manifest in form of my actions. And therefore, we should be very careful also with our own thoughts. And therefore, when I find that my mind is entertaining thoughts of anger, thoughts of retaliation, thoughts of resentment, I should check my mind and 
and try to deal with those thoughts so that those thoughts are resolved and so that my mind remains free from this kind of hurting of violent thoughts. And of course, there is even a subtler level of violence. Physical violence, violence I mean at the level of physical actions, violence at the level of speech, violence at the level of thoughts, and all of these violences is source in what we call spiritual violence or violence of the self. Violating my own self. So, Ishavasi Upanishad says, Asurya Nama Telokaha Andhena Tamasavrataha Tamste Pratyavigachandi Yekeja Atmahano Janaha. So, those people who hurt their own self, they wind up in the worlds of the demons. So, Atmahano Janaha, the expression used is those people who hurt themselves, those people who kill themselves or those who hurt themselves. But Swami, I never hurt myself. Nobody ever hurts themselves, you know. We hurt somebody else, we never hurt ourselves. But in a way we do. In a way we do. Of course, self is Satchidananda and therefore it cannot be hurt in a, in, in a primary sense or it cannot be killed in the primary sense, but it can be hurt also in a secondary sense. And whenever we insult somebody or whenever we abuse something, so abusing something, misusing something, abuse, insulting somebody is also a violence, is also killing actually. You know, that's Ashastra Vasa. You can kill somebody without the weapon, by insulting, by humiliating, by abusing. And because of ignorance, a constant abuse goes on within my own self. Because of ignorance of my own self, not knowing that the nature of the self is ananda or happiness, and I take myself unhappy or I take myself to be incomplete or unhappy and then all the time running out in the world searching for happiness. So every time I run out to the world in search of happiness, it is at the cost of my own self. It is at the, I cannot be going out for searching for happiness unless I deny the happiness which is my own nature. I, in fact, abuse my own self in a way, because of ignorance. So how ignorance brings about all the time is self-designing. That happiness I am, the wholeness I am, but not knowing myself as I am, I take myself unhappy, I take myself to be needy, and then I go about performing actions to fulfill those needs from a source which cannot fulfill my needs. <coughs> and that's how, in what we call extroverted behavior, Meaning that any action that is performed seeking happiness from outside of me involves all the time ignoring me or even insult, abusing me or insulting me, disowning me and therefore ignorance is the primary cause of all the violence. Understand that the whole universe also is created due to ignorance and that's the reason why we find a built-in violence and that is why violence is there in all of us. And ultimate non-violence would only mean Self-knowledge, that's the ultimate non-violence. And until then, there will be violence in some way or the other. Until then we can minimize the violence at every level. But ultimate non-violence would mean knowing myself as a whole and complete being. And there, my mind does not run out seeking that completeness. Or, that means that disowning or abusing my own self, that will not happen. And that's how the ultimate violence, which is what we call the spiritual violence, can be removed by the knowledge of the self, and that is how a person will be non-violent in the primary sense. Then he is non-violent. He does not violate anybody because he is spontaneously non-violent. He is spontaneously in tune with the order which is non-violent. And so, no avimsa or non-violence is the primary value. As we said, any other value ultimately amounts to non-violence in one form or the other or abusing any value or violating any value also means violence. <coughs> so therefore, as we said in the morning, Yoga Shastra prescribes ahimsa or non-violence as the first value, as yama. Another yama, namely satya, etc. are nothing but practice of ahimsa only. And so Lord Krishna also says, amanitvam adam vitvam. Ahimsa. So, what should we do? 
If anger arises in my mind, if a violent tendency arises, what should I do? If there is in my mind a tendency to retaliate, what should I do? So Lord Krishna says the next value. Amanitvam, Adamritvam, Ahimsa, Kshantihi. So Kshantihi is explained as Par Aparada Praptav Avikriya. Kshanti means Kshama, means forbearance. To bear. It involves also endurance. Forbearance. Par Aparada Praptav, even when somebody offends me. Avikriya, that my mind does not get perturbed. That there is no, there is no tendency to retaliate. That there is a tendency to accept any kind of behavior which is meted out to me is called kshama or forbearance. This is a great value, kshama. So ahimsa is possible, non-violence is possible when there is kshama in me. Kshama means, in Swami likes to translate kshama as accommodation, to accommodate others. We should say that kshama or forgiveness is really a graceful acceptance. Lord, give me the serenity to accept what I cannot change. This is Kshama. There are many things in the world that we cannot change. And rather than retaliating towards them because they are not in agreement with me or they are not favorable to me, I retaliate and therefore not retaliating towards that which is not even favorable to me also is what we call the graceful acceptance. So Kshama can be said to be forbearance, accommodation or graceful acceptance. <coughs> I think this is one of the most important values again in all our interactions. The kshama or the forbearance or graceful acceptance has its most application in all the relationships. Because whenever I relate to somebody and our life is nothing but relationship, father and son, husband and wife, mother and son, mother and daughter, whatever it is, friends, even teacher and student, all these are relationships and therefore we always relate to somebody or other. And every relationship calls for this kshama or accommodation. And why is it so? Because a person with whom I am related may not have all the qualities that I desire them to have. Everybody is, as we said, made up of virtue and limitations. So, guna and dosha. Guna means virtues, dosha means defects. Everything that is created is a combination or union of or combination of virtue and defects. There is nothing in the world that is created that is free from defect. And there is nothing in the world that is created that is free from virtue also. If it did not have virtue, it would not have been created. And the fact that it is created means that it has some defect. Only Brahman with uncreated is free from the defect, otherwise whatever is created has some limitation, has some defect. And whatever is created has a virtue and therefore every person that I relate to also is bound to be a combination of virtue and defect. There is no perfect person. There is nobody in the world who can satisfy all my expectations. Nobody. Even if they satisfy expectation, my expectations keep on growing anyway. There is nobody in fact who can satisfy my expectations. And therefore, I have to put up with the people who have tendencies or qualities or habits. Look at the way he talks, look at the way he dresses, look at the way he snores, look at the way he does, you know. All, all kinds of things are found to be there. And what should we do? This is where uh, the value of what we call Kshama or forgiveness comes. So forgiving for the limitations of other people, forgiving for even their offensive behavior, forgiving them for even when there is a reason. That is that the behavior of the person may be offensive. And there is a reason on my part to become angry. That is justification perhaps to retaliate. And I have the capacity to retaliate also. See, very often the kshama or the forgiveness is thought to be nothing but silent suffering. Suffering out of helplessness because in many situations I am not able to retaliate and therefore I swallow whatever is done to me and I do not show any of my feelings and very often in India 
people think or interpret this as kshama or forbearance. But that is just helplessness. It is not that we suffer something out of helplessness. That would mean suffering. But when there is a capacity to retaliate, and then also I do not retaliate. That would mean when So there is a statement in Sanskrit which says, Kshama Vyascha Bhushram. Kshama of forgiveness is the embellishment of the brave and not of the weak. And therefore understand, none of these values can be practiced by somebody who is weak. All these, each one of these values requires me to be a strong person or practicing them will require me to grow in my strength. And so Kshama, forgiving. Swami, how can I forgive? Look at the behavior of this person. How can I forgive? And then we are told that forgiving or accommodating becomes possible when we can discover a genuine sympathy for the other person. Sympathy for this fellow Swami, the way he behaves, he offends me, he treats me like this, how can I be sympathetic to him? Then we are told that look at the person behind the behavior. There is a behavior and there is a person behind the behavior. The general rule is that a person who hurts himself or herself also must be hurt. The one who hurts others also must be the one who has been hurt. Because a happy person can never hurt anybody. It will be interesting to see how our own behavior and then we can understand all of this very well. That how, when do I find myself hurting somebody? When I am in pain. I can never hurt somebody when I am happy. I give a slap to somebody and say, Oh, I am so happy this morning that I felt like just giving you a punch. That never happens. I hurt somebody by my actions or by my words or by my thoughts only when I am hurt, I am in pain. And therefore, if you see this rule that a person who outwardly is violent, person who is outwardly offensive, person who outwardly behaves in a manner which is unbecoming. That person, that shows nothing but his helplessness. It is only out of helplessness that a person becomes violent. Violence is not really a sign of strength, but it is a sign of weakness. Anger also is not a sign of strength, but a sign of weakness. And therefore, any offensive behavior does not in fact reflect the strength of the person, but it reflects only the weakness or helplessness of the person. So if I make myself see the helplessness of the person who is angry, who is offensive, then it will be possible for me to discover a sympathy for that person. And to discover that I can look at my own behavior as to what happens to me when I get angry. Then I realize that I myself get angry only when I am in pain. I find myself hurting somebody else when I am in pain. Therefore, at that time also, when my anger is expressed or when my hurting behavior comes out, I am not doing it. It is someone else that is doing it. It is my anger that is doing it. <coughs> At that time, my choice is gone. Even though I am a human being, having what we call the faculty of choice, but then whenever I, am, I subject myself or I am controlled by the impulses, then my faculty of choice is not available. It is anger or greed or something like that that has taken hold of me. You know, I mean, when, when somebody is, uh, when some spirit enters somebody, have you ever seen anybody behaving? A ghost or a spirit enters, you know. Then it is not this fellow who is behaving or talking. It is a ghost that is talking. I don't know whether the ghosts are there or not. But anyway, we hear about this ghost. And this ghost entering. And so there is this boy, must be about 22 years old. At 8.45 in the evening, his behavior would just change. At that time in the evening, he just behaves as a different person. In fact, his voice also changes. A female voice comes out from him. And he acts altogether a different funny fellow. Then was discovered that at that time, who was, who was actually behave, talking through him? Some woman who was, who was a vendor, you know, selling some peanuts at a bus stop. Somehow that woman entered this fellow. That's what they found out. And so at 8.45 in the evening, it is not this boy, but that woman who is behaving, talking to him. And so, when a person talks like that, 
we know that it is not him, it is someone else. Similarly also when a person gets angry, it is just like that. Whether such ghosts are there or not, whether there are many spirits, anger is like one of the ghosts and when he enters me, then it is not I who is acting, it is that anger that is acting. You see people, I remember, you know, as growing up, sometimes, you know, this one of our neighbors used to get so angry at his wife. If, she, you know, if the food was not to his taste for whatever reason, was an angry person. And someday you can see the, the, the plates flying out of the house, you know. <laughs> then you know, the plate of food is served and he eats the food and he is just so upset, he just throws it. He is not doing it. It is anger that is doing it. And thus, when we recognize that it is a ghost or a spirit of anger or greed or resentment or jealousy or some such negative tendency has taken over the hold of this person and that's what makes him behave it is not he, because when he is in good mood, when he is himself, he will never act like that. We always get ashamed of this kind of behavior when we recover from this kind of moods. So if we can see this fact, then it may be possible for us to discover a genuine sympathy for somebody's offensive behavior. This is not easy at all. It is very difficult. When somebody is offending me, somebody insults me, somebody abuses me, the natural reaction is to react, retaliate and abuse. Usually an abuse is retaliated with abuse. Unfortunately what happens is it only creates a series of abuses or a series of violence. In Mahabharata these are the stories, you know, which tell us how violence breeds violence. How anger breeds anger or violence breeds violence. Sometimes I know this as a fact in India. Sometimes there is some between certain communities or between certain families, the animosity or enmity gets created and one member of this family kills somebody from that camp, family. Then his son will kill somebody here. This fellow somebody will come like that. And like this, this kind of violence goes on for how many generations? For sometimes when the research is done we find that this is the twenty-first killing, like this in retaliation. One retaliates, other fellow retaliates, this fellow retaliates. This retaliation only breeds nothing but destruction. And this is shown in Mahabharata. There is a story of these two friends. Drupada was the prince, a Kshatriya prince, and Drona was the Brahmin boy. Both of these were studying in a Gurukulam together. Drona was a Brahmin, was very bright. Drupada was prince, but not that bright. And so the Drona always used to help his Drupada. Whenever there was homework, whatever was to be done, Drona always used to help him. And therefore the Drupada had a tremendous sense of gratitude. So when they both graduated from this Gurukulam, then Drupada promised Drona that when I become king, I'll give you half of my kingdom. Okay. So we both went their ways. Drona was a Brahmin, Brahmin means poor, and he was married, he had a son, his name was Ashwatthama, and he was so poor that his wife had nothing to, sometimes to feed this boy. And this boy would demand milk, or he sees his friend drinking milk, and this poor woman, mother, would take some wheat flour and mix it in water, and then, you know, create an appearance that this is like milk, and give him, this is how the, the, the this was going on. And once this became this unbearable, then his wife comes and tells Drona. He says, why don't you, you were talking about your friend Drupada. Then he was prince, but now he's become king. Why don't you go? He has promised you to give half the kingdom. Why don't you go and remind him? He says, no. Brahmins are very proud people. He says, no, I will not go and stretch my hand before anybody. I won't do that. And that's anyway, his wives persuaded him. And he said, don't ask for a kingdom, etc. Just ask for a few things so that our family can run. And therefore, this Drona was persuaded to go to Drupada. Drupada now has become king. Drona enters in his court. And Drupada sees and doesn't recognize him. And so Drona, now is Drona Acharya. Drona was a Brahmin and he was a great teacher, Acharya, of archery and of, you know, and so, uh, of weaponry as a matter of fact. So he was well known as a teacher. And so he enters 
Drupada does not recognize him and Dronacharya gives, introduces himself that my name is Drona. He says, yes, so what? He says, do you remember that we were studying together? Oh, really? And Drupada, in fact, refuses to recognize him. Dronacharya is insulted in front of everybody. He comes home with hurt. Anyway, that time goes. In course of time, then Dronacharya is in his travel, is coming to Hastinapur where the Pandava princes, Pandavas are, and Kaurava princes are, you know, growing. And at that time, uh, these fellows are playing with a ball. And uh, when, what happens once is the ball is thrown, it goes into, falls into well, very deep. All the princes are there and they are looking at the ball and they don't know how to retrieve the ball, which is deep below. And this Dronacharya happens to walk in there, walk at that time. And he says, he looks at this boy, he says, hey, what's the matter? He says, where the ball has fallen down in the well? Can you help us? He says, I can help you. And he has such mastery over the weapons and over archery, that seems that he just took some blade of grass and converted and then with utterance of mantra, he just threw there, it stuck the ball. Took another blade of grass, threw that, stuck the first blade of grass, a third blade of grass, fourth blade of grass, and like that, there was a whole series of blades of grass. And it became like a little rope. And Dronachana pulled out that ball. The princes were all amazed. They ran and they reported this to their great grandfather, who was Bhishma. And then Bhishma heard, who has come? Dronachari has come. He was invited. And he was appointed as the Guru for archery of all the princes. That's how Dronacharya became the teacher. And the uh, training was over. Time came for Guru Dakshina. And so everybody was offering Guru Dakshina. When Arjuna's time, Arjuna's turn came, he says, Sir, what can I offer you as Guru Dakshina? He says, Well, you must go and fight with Drupad, defeat him in the battle. And bring him here. Win over his kingdom, bring him here. Arrest him and bring him here. Arjuna goes and has a fight with Drupa. Arjuna wins the battle. His kingdom is, is, you know, is taken over. Drupada is arrested and is brought before Dronacharya. He is made to feel like that, like dust. And Drona says, Do you remember you insulted me? And the same insult was now. Drupada was treated the same way, he was also insulted in front of everybody. And Dronacharya says, okay, never behave like this again. I am giving you your half kingdom back. Half kingdom was taken away from him. The half kingdom was given back after insulting him in front of everybody. Drupada goes back. Do you think he will forget his insult? He will not forget. He was so hurt that in fact performed. He invited some priests and said, I want to have a son. He himself was not capable of fighting with Dronacharya. I want to have a son who will kill Dronacharya. And thus a homage are performed and a son is born. His name is Drishtadyamna and is specifically born to kill Dronacharya. In comes the battle of this Kurukshetra. Pandavas on one side, Kauravas on the other side. Drishtadyamna is the commander if you were Pandavas. So first ten days the battle goes on with Bhishma. The next Commander in chief of the Kaurava is Dronacharya. And he was so fierce, nobody could stand him. It looked as though Dronacharya is going to destroy the whole Pandava army. And now then, Drishtadyamna is reminded, look, what is what's the purpose for which you are here? You are here only to kill Dronacharya. But nobody could do that. But it was well known. There is Dronacharya had a tremendous weakness for his son. The name of his son was Ashwatthana. It was his vow that if the day Ashwatthama dies, I am going to give up my life also. So much attachment. This was well known to Lord Krishna, of course. Therefore, he says to Bhima, Bhimsen, there was an elephant whose name was Ashwatthama also. So Bhima was asked to go and, and kill that Ashwatthama elephant and said Lord Krishna was to Bhima, shout loudly. Announce Ashwatthama Hataha, Ashwatthama Hataha, meaning Ashwatthama is killed, Ashwatthama is killed. And when Drona will hear that, he will drop all his weapons. Bhima shouted loudly, Ashwatthama Hataha, and saying, you know, he did not quite trust him. So 
Buddha says, then alone I will believe. Yudhishthira's eldest brother, he is Dharmaputra, he is embodiment of Dharma, and he would never tell a lie. And so if Yudhishthira says, I will accept it. So then Lord Krishna said to Yudhishthira, hey, hey, you say, I can't say this. <laughs> he says, Vashwatthama is killed. That is all right, but that's elephant that is killed, not his son. Doesn't matter, he says, Vashwatthama hatha narova kunjarova. There is a very famous expression, Narova Kunjar, Narova, whether it is a man or elephant. Ashwatthama is killed, man or elephant. And so Yudhishthira is also shouted under persuasion of Lord Krishna, Ashwatthama Hataha, Ashwatthama is killed. And Dronacharya was not there to listen to the further words, even though Yudhishthira said, elephant, man or elephant. I do not know, Ashwatthama is killed. This one lie of Yudhishthira required him to go to hell, you know, remember. But anyway, as soon as Dronacharya heard these words, he dropped his weapons, he sat down, and then Drishtadimna came along and, and killed us, Dronacharya. So Drupada is avenging, you know, the hurt that was meted out to him. Dronacharya is hurt, killed. His son Aswatthana came to know that my father has been killed. That's it. He said, okay, I'm going to take revenge. So revenge followed by revenge. And Kauravas lost the battle, Pandavas won the battle, but nobody was left. Only Pandavas, very few people were left. Pandavas and the Pandavas had five sons who looked like them, like their fathers. So the battle is over at night in the camps, everybody is sleeping. Ashwatthama comes, stalking at night, and he wants to kill these Pandavas. And he sees his five brothers sleeping in a row. And they are all like Pandavas. He kills them and goes away. It just happened that they were not Pandavas, they Pandavas' son, so children. So Ashwatthama made a mistake. That's why Pandavas were saved. But their, their mother, Draupadi, whose five children they were, they were also great warriors, these sons. Young, but they were great warriors. When she came to know that my sons have been killed, bring Ashwatthama here, again revenge. I want to see him dead. So Arjuna is made to go. Arjuna goes and brings Ashwatthama, he arrests him, brings him before Draupadi. And they were going to kill him. But thank God that last moment in, in Draupadi, this thought occurred. He says, hey, wait a minute. My sons have been killed by him, but he is also a son of a mother. If I kill him, what will happen to his mother? And therefore, she said, okay, no, I do not want to kill him. But the vow was taken to kill him. So Ashwatthama had a jewel on his head, it is said he was born with that kind of a jewel that was removed, which was as good as sort of killing him. And then Ashwatthama's let go. That is where this thing stopped. But how lack of kshama, lack of forgiveness, how when we retaliate or revengeful action always also brings about revenge from the other person. And therefore, kshama, kshama means forbearance, forgiveness recognizing what damage this does and stopping that process from ourselves. Somebody did it to me, but I need not retaliate in the same way because a retaliation also will be made by another retaliation. Thus, there will be only a series of retaliations hurting and damaging everybody and therefore stopping that. Recognizing what is retaliation and what this uh, hurting and violence does to everybody and thus a value for becoming non-violent, but non-violence requires me to have kshama or forgiveness or accommodation by becoming larger than the offense the other person has committed. He has offended me. For me to forgive requires me to be large-hearted. Like a little child, you know, sometimes he kicks the father. Last night itself, this child is so angry, his grandfather, he just started punching him, you know, this little two-and-a-half-year-old little thing. He just got angry, started punching his father. What would the grandfather, what would grandfather punch him back? No. He hugs him. He knows that this is a child. And therefore, does not get offended. Even though the behavior is offensive. Somebody punching me is an offensive behavior. When I recognize it's just a child, then the, the reaction of retaliation does not arise from me. I, I accommodate. I, my large-heartedness, accepts that child and that is how 
So how this kind of kshama is always there in our life? We do show kshama or forgiveness in many cases. All that we, so we know what is meant by the spirit of forgiveness. We have to make, express it in various situations which are offensive situations for our own health, for our own growth and for the peace in our own mind. And therefore, this kshama is a very, very important value. Ahimsa is possible only when there is kshama, when there is forgiveness, accommodation, a glad acceptance of the limitations and defects of other people, recognizing that fact that defect or limitation is a reality of life. And so, acceptance of that is what we call kshama. Okay? We will continue our discussion tomorrow. Om Purnamadav Purnaminam Purnat Purnamudachyate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashashyate Om Shanti 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 Shankaram Shankaracharyam Keshavam Vadarayanam Sutra Bhashyakrutavande Bhagavantau Punah Punah Ishvaro Gururatmede Murti Bheda Vibhagine Vyomavadhyapta Dehaya Dakshinamurtaye Namaha Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Shri Gurubhyo Namaha Hari Om